Hello, dearest listener. You have tuned in to At Your Peril by Arthur McBain and Owen Jenkins. Before we begin, a parish notice. A warning. What you are about to hear may terrify and horrify you to the very core of your being. It may also involve content unsuitable for children, those with a nervous disposition, or wimps. If you must, turn off your receiver now. No? In that case, we shall begin at your peril. Dick Gordon's Newsletter by Dick Gordon Hi there everyone, it's Dick Gordon here. This will be a slightly longer entry to the newsletter than usual, but I promise that it's important. And since Kirsty took the leap of making the West Lancashire Paranormal Society newsletter paperless, I feel no remorse for the word count. Although, I have heard murmurs that storing a newsletter on your email is actually less carbon efficient than printing out the two dozen copies on 80 GSM paper and whacking it into a brown recycled A5 envelope, stamping it and letting nature take its course via our sovereign monarch, the Mail Royale of Great Britain. But I'll leave that to our conscientious club sec to research. As you all know, October, for me, is foraging season. And so, I spent a week solo camping on the Isle of Lundy, or Lundy Island as they're insisting on calling it these days. It's a three mile long and half mile wide majestic outcrop, ten miles off the coast of North Devon, where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Bristol Channel. It is remote and feels it. A single ferry called the MS Oldenburg visits the island on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays. Other than that, you are cut off from civilization, except the occasional bit of phone signal, if it decides to grace you with its presence. There is a single pub, a single shop, a tiny, lacklustre museum, a campsite with a maximum capacity of 40 people, and a handful of old cottages available for visitors to hire. When the MS Oldenburg sails away, you're alone with the 50 or so people staying on the island. 20 so are permanent staff, the rest are tourists. 50 people isn't many, and it's astounding how quickly one can feel completely isolated and alone. Lundy is an old English word for puffin, so it translates to the Isle of Puffin, or Puffin Island. The island is, as the name suggests, frequented each spring by puffins. Thousands of the beautiful little feathered things make the cliffs their home. I didn't see any puffins, sadly. The puffins are gone by October. Puffin season is spring. What I did see, however, were seals. Many hundreds of seals. October is perfect for spotting seal pups shedding their baby fur. Truly for jazzling. The island also boasts one of the most impressive collections of grassland fungi in Great Britain. I don't know if any of you know this, but modern farming practices have really hit the common grassland fungi of the British Isles very hard. Fungicides are killing off all of the biodiversity in the soil, and not just the fungicides that they spray onto crops, but also what they're putting in animal feed. 
You'll all know that mushrooms love to grow on dung. Well, dung is now quite toxic to fungi, and so even cattle fields are becoming devoid of fungi life. Losing these common species is a scarier prospect for the human race than you'll imagine. But I won't bore you all again with fungi facts now. All I will say is that if fungi goes, we'll all be living on a barren, lifeless and toxic planet, and we'll probably have to start living underground with synthetically produced oxygen and drinking all of our food virus sodding reverse catheter. I'll stop. I'll stop. That's the last of all that, folks. You know what I'm like. <laughs> get me going. I just get so fired up by fungi. Anyway, the Lundy fungi is spectacular and was the main purpose of my trip. There is farming on the island, but all the animals are organic and grass-fed, so the modern fungicides are not finding their way there. No way. I've written a separate photo essay for the West Lancashire Fungi Fanatics newsletter about my experiences foraging fungi and identifying four different strains of hallucinogenic mushrooms. Identified, not sampled. Along with some rare ink caps, parasols and an elusive parrot wax cap. So, if any of you would like to read that, I'd be happy to forward. Also on Lundy, I spotted many dung beetles, a few deer, a stag, and some lesser life forms such as rock climbers. The sodding rock climbers. A scourge on any beautiful sea view. All they do is abseil down the sea cliffs and then climb back up. Aside from being horrendously dangerous, it's also completely pointless and displays some kind of repetitive delusion disorder. Many a lovely, peaceful night on the island's single pub, the Morisco Tavern, was ruined by these loud adrenaline junkies who did nothing other than laugh at each other's dirty jokes, talk at full volume about how good their day's climbing was and how brilliant they all are, drink ale and requesting horrible, thumpy, pumpy music on the jukebox. Had I known that Lundy was one of the UK's premier destinations for climbing clubs, I'd have thought twice about going. Many of you will have been WLPS members for long enough to remember the debacle at our 2012 Halloween meet to Canafan Castle, when we came head-to-head -head with the West Lancashire Climbing and Mountaineering Confederation, who were in Wales for climbing. For those newer members, I'll fill you in. A member of their club had parked their club van directly behind our gear truck overnight, and we couldn't access any of our ghost hunting equipment. Needless to say that that particular vigil was fruitless, without our AMF rigs, Geiger counter, audio and video setup and Ouija boards. And in the end, it was a wasted trip. Then we had their half-witted explanation that they didn't think anyone would need access to the truck overnight. Um, we are ghost hunters. When do you think we need to access our truck? Over brunch? Arses. There is no lesser member of society than a rock climber. And I'm sorry to our new provisional member, Liam, who I know is an avid rock climber. You are one of the good ones and are very welcome here. I do hope you become a full member soon. A quick word on the history of the island. There's lots of it. People have lived on the island since before the Bronze Age. Farmers, hunter-gatherers and traders. Prehistoric settlements have been unearthed in their many, and standing stones from those forgotten times stick up from the heathland like spiritual relics. More recently, the island was used as an outpost in the Great War and the Second World War. Prisoners of war were held on the island, and a number of German planes went down against the island's cliffs. These days it's a heritage site, and a tiny civilization exists purely for its tourism. 
Lundy boasts some exceptional scenery, and it's easy to find your way around, given that the island is divided by three equidistant stone walls, quarter wall, half wall, and three-quarter wall. Some spots of particular interest were Seal's Hole, Devil's Kitchen, Virgin Spring, Devil's Lime Kiln, Widow's Tenement, and Devil's Chimney. From these, it would appear that the devil has made himself a cosy little holiday destination on the island. <laughs> but nothing took my breath away quite like old light. Photo attached and also on the Instagram, thanks to Adam. Do take a look if you can. Old Light is a 300-foot-tall stone lighthouse. It's long since been decommissioned in favour of a pair of newer lighthouses on each far tip of the island and is now home to a couple of deck chairs on the top rather than the original enormous light. It was perfectly positioned as the gateway to the Bristol Channel and at the time of building stood proudly as the tallest lighthouse in the UK. However, it quickly became evident that the lighthouse was not terribly effective as it was too high, making it impossible to spot through the sea mists that can roll onto Lundy without a moment's notice. On several occasions, while hiking around the island, I was suddenly enveloped by a thick, white sea fog, the likes of which I'd never seen before on any of my solo camps. Visibility down to nothing more than a metre in each direction. The fog seems to bring with it an echoing silence. The only sounds are your walking boots thudding on the grass underfoot. Even the birdsong seems to fade into nothing. It quickly becomes disorientating. You lose your way, wander, hoping to reach quarter wall or, or half wall, desperately needing something to help you get your bearings. In moments like this, you worry that you may have been lost forever. But such are the perils of solo camping. We all know the risks going in, and if you don't like the heat, get out the devil's kitchen. But you need to keep your wits about you. Remember your training. You have to walk slower, careful of your footfall. One misguided step could send you cascading over the edge of a sea cliff to your certain fate. No one but the puffins to hear your cries for help. People had accidents here. Oh boy, people had accidents. And in the fog it was almost impossible for the search and rescue helicopter to find you. On one such foggy day, I found myself in the only pub talking to Robert. Robert is a young man of about 35 and has lived on Lundy for a decade. He runs the Morisco Tavern. He spent his days reading books, pulling pints and working the generator out back. He told me that he had visited the island with his mother in his early twenties and fell in love with the place. He hates mobile phones. He hates the internet and social media. As such, there is a no phones, no laptops rule in the pub. If you take your phone out, you are calmly and firmly told to drop some money in the Lundy Fondy charity pot. If you ask for a Wi-Fi code, you had to double the donation. If you use the word Google as a verb, the encyclopedia would be thrown at your head. I like Robert. He is wise beyond his years, and I wonder why my own son couldn't be more like him. <laughs> Sorry, Liam. Well, Robert and I were getting on famously, and I happened to mention the several clubs of which I am a member. At the mere mention of the West Lancashire Paranormal Society, Robert's eyes lit up. Believe, do you? he said, intensity flooding his face like a sea mist. In ghosts, I mean. I nodded told him that, after fungi, the paranormal had always been one of my most devoted interests. 
I mentioned that on an island such as this, with so much history, there must be swathes of ghost stories. He nodded slowly. Oh, yes, he said. There's stories indeed. I hear them all. People come in here spouting their experiences, and after a while you start noticing which ones are true, because when people, strangers to each other, begin regaling the same experiences, you take notice. I asked him what the most common tale was. There's the spinning girl. People see her all the time. I hear it probably once a week, he said. Well, my friends, this was gold dust to people like us. The spinning girl is a figure of a young girl, black hair no more than ten years old, dressed in a prehistoric tunic and bare feet. She is spinning wool on a small wooden spinner, a spindle whirl. She usually has her eyes closed and never moves around. She just stands some way away on the edge of darkness, barely perceptible in the night air. But all you can hear is the quiet rattle of her wool spinner. But there was more. You see, Robert told me she is usually seen with her eyes closed. That was if you were in luck. If you saw the spinning girl with her eyes open... It meant that something bad was coming your way. It was a very rare thing, and Robert had only heard of her having her eyes open twice in his decade on the island. Both times the vision had befallen a rock climber, and both times the climbers had taken a nasty fall. One fractured both ankles and other shattered his spine, never to walk again. The girl was said to be the daughter of a Lundy chieftain killed by an invading tribe. As such, she was reaping revenge on any outsiders on the island, wandering the acid grasslands for invaders. I asked Robert if he had ever had experience himself. Once, he said, complexion draining. About seven years ago, I had been up in old light. He used to sit up there each night watching the sunset over the Atlantic. He'd read until there wasn't enough light left and then switch on his torch for the descent back down. The stairs are steep and narrow, and I can attest to this myself. He'd pass a small room, wood-panelled and empty, where the lighthouse keeper would sleep overnight to keep the light burning, and then head down into what he called the cavern, which was the gargantuan main body of the lighthouse. A vast, empty, hollow space, with the stone stairs circling their way around the edge to ground level. It is a terrifying place to be. You can only move so fast upwards or downwards along the steep stairs. An unfortunate movement to the side would send you plummeting to the hard stone flooring below. Robert always had a bad feeling about the small lighthouse keeper's room at the top of the tower. The door was often closed, but on occasion, a holiday maker would have ventured up the lighthouse during the day and left it open. Robert never touched the door. But if it was open, he'd make a point of not looking inside as he passed. Call it intuition. On the night in question, Robert climbed up the stairs as usual and noticed that the door was closed. I'll drive home the fact. He always noticed the door. Then he sat in the same deck chair as always and watched the sun disappear over the sea. The sky was a deep red that night, apparently. Beautiful. It was usual to hear the wind howling past the old windows from the position at the top, usual to hear creaks and thuds. They'd sound disconcerting as they echoed through the cavern, growing in complexity and otherworldliness. 
But on this particular night, there was a thud that he had not heard before. He had become accustomed to the sounds over the years, able to distinguish noises from one another, but this one was different. This thud came from somewhere close by. It came from the lighthouse keeper's room directly below. Robert tried to shrug it off as something natural. A bird flying into the window, the draft walloping the shutters. He ordered himself to act normal, follow the usual routine, and not allow fanciful notions of the paranormal to infect his psyche. The sun set and he was wrapped in the glow of a particularly bright moon. Torch switched on, Robert began his descent. And to his horror, the door to the lighthouse keeper's room was open. It had definitely been closed, he reiterated to me. He didn't look inside, but rather couldn't move fast enough past as he clattered down the steep stone steps through the cavern. His footsteps echoed and reverberated, filling his ears with complicated sounds of horror. Once at the bottom, he ran as fast as he could along Southfield back towards his cottage. At this point in the story, he paused, almost too terrified to continue. During his run, something made him stop and look around. To his horror, against the bright full moon, he could clearly see the silhouette of a tall male figure in the top of the lighthouse. The lighthouse keeper. He told me that he hadn't been back in old light since that night. Now then, fellow society members, you know me. I'm like a bloodhound when I hear a haunted spot. So call me mad. <laughs> I know some of you already too. <laughs> but I decided there and then to spend the evening in old light. And when I say evening, I mean all evening. And when I say all evening, I mean all night. At dusk, I retrieved my sleeping bag and carry mat from my tent and began the hike over Beacon Hill towards old light. It stood stoic and unchanging against the horizon. The windows were filled with darkness, and my heart fluttered when I thought of what might be waiting for me inside. As I approached the dry stone wall that surrounded old light, I decided to follow the perimeter all the way round. There were plenty of sheep droppings here, which I knew meant that there would be a brilliant opportunity for some late-night fungi spotting. I stepped carefully as I moved, pointing my torch all around as I scanned the floor for specimens. I spotted a couple of delightful horse mushrooms, which I picked and ate raw there and then. Details of other gourmet mushrooms I discovered can be found in my photo essay for the West Lancashire Fungi Fanatics newsletter. Again, I invite you to read it. Let me know and I'll, I'll send it over. As I followed the wall, I passed a standing stone which I presumed to be just another of the island's many Bronze Age standing stones. And then I passed another. And another. Until I finally gave them my attention. They weren't Bronze Age standing stones, but rather graves. This was the old Lundy Cemetery. I cast my torch around at the dozen or so headstones, jutting out at angles over the uneven ground. One stone in particular caught my interest. It was smaller than the others, and looked made in haste. I studied it carefully. The writing was not uniform, but rather chipped away, as if with a blunt instrument in unskilled hands. It only displayed four words, and a date. 1801, Albert. And then, Best Lighthouse Keep. I assumed that this grave 
had been laid by a lighthouse keeper's assistant. I thought about that poor soul, digging a grave for his master, cut off from home, away from help, totally alone. I wondered of the circumstances that led to Albert's death. My imagination was filled with images of hardship and solitude. The lighthouse was atmospheric. I stood at the bottom of what Robert had called the cavern and looked up. The space was enormous and in the darkness seemed to rise further up and up into eternity. Sounds echoed in a constant whirling of noise. Wind mixed with drips and creaks. I turned off my torch and stood in the centre of the circle, feeling the energy of the place. It felt heavy and otherworldly. Something about the isolation of this building made me uneasy. Usually, if things go pear-shaped, help isn't far away. But here, I was a ten-minute run down a hill to the campsite where the, the climbers were, who wouldn't be of any assistance owing to the fact that they would all be drunk and listening to their thumpy-pumpy music. I left my torch off and used the iron handrail to lead me up the stairs. As is WLPS standard procedure, we like to rely on our eyes, not torches. It wouldn't take long for my eyes to acclimatise. I took each step slowly and carefully, heightening my senses and savouring each moment. There seemed to be many more steps in the darkness than in daytime. The whole place seemed to be bigger more all-consuming and historic than it was on my first excursion on day one of my trip. I stopped halfway to catch my breath, and in the cacophony of subtle sounds echoing around the place, I could have sworn I heard the soft scratching of a spinning spool of wool. I couldn't help but grin in the darkness as I reached for my camera. I enabled night vision and pointed it around the space, Nothing ahead, behind, or below. I continued my upward climb. Eventually, I passed the lighthouse keeper's room. The door was open. I made a special point to enter and take a look. There was a small window set into the stone, through which the full moon sent a steady stream of cold night. The room was empty an old wooden floor that creaked underfoot and wood panelling on each wall. I noted how cosy the room was, with a space for a small stove. I imagined a single bed against the wall uh, and tried to see the lighthouse keeper, or lighthouse keeper's assistant, sat in here on a cold winter's night, huddled by the stove, whiling away the hours. Onwards. I went back into the stairway and climbed up a thin ladder into the lighthouse itself. The view was breathtaking. A 360 degree panorama of the island by night. The moon was enormous, hanging over the Atlantic like an ethereal spirit. Its glow reflected off the sea, creating a corridor of light towards me. The waves beneath looked so calm as they rippled on towards the horizon that I was almost intoxicated by a feeling of serenity. It was just as I sat in one of the deck chairs that I became aware once more of the quiet spinning sound echoing up the lighthouse towards me. 
At that point, I could convince myself that it was a trick of the wind, a, a creation of the mind. As is WLPS standard procedure, always remain sceptical. But then, there were footsteps, which I could not credit the wind for. I called out, Hello? The most likely explanation was another visitor who'd wandered in, though I hadn't seen any torches making their way across the fields. There was no response. I called again. Hello? My own voice echoed back at me to infinity. If there was someone else in the lighthouse, they were either deaf or trying to scare me. Footsteps again, quick, shuffling. It was clear this time. The footsteps weren't on stone. They were on wood. But there was no creaking. Whoever was moving was... weightless. I summoned my courage and headed for the lighthouse keeper's room. Friends, in all my years with the West Lancashire Paranormal Society, I have never seen a ghost with my own eyes. Until now. Standing in the centre of the lighthouse keeper's room, hunched over, legs at strange angles, as if they'd been snapped at the knees, was a figure silhouetted in the moonlight. He was wearing a worker's uniform, complete with waistcoat and pocket watch. His face was gaunt, marked with grease, at odds with his silvery beard, which was almost translucent. His breath was shallow and laboured, as if he'd been trying to catch his breath for the last two hundred years. I couldn't contain myself. I've spent my entire life searching for ghosts, wanting desperately to make contact with the other side, as it were, and here it was. My moment. It was calmer than I'd expected it to be. More peaceful. My heart rate remained the same, unchanging and normal. No adrenaline began coursing through my veins. It was as if I was merely seeing a fact of life. A piece of nature, like spotting a seal, a horse mushroom, or a rock climber in the wild. Like wearing x-ray specks, I was seeing back through layers of history. Like when you peel wallpaper to reveal bygone patterns. The man's eyes were wide open. He was staring right through me. Terrified of something right behind me. I look back now and realise that this was an omen. A warning. I was frozen to the spot. My blood ran cold. For right behind me came the sound I thought I had been imagining. The slow, subtle and terrified sound of spinning wool. I turned on my heels, and there she stood. Now this was the antithesis to seeing the lighthouse keeper. No longer like seeing a fact of life, this was the very fact of death in all its horror. My heart was racing. She was thin, weedy and gaunt. I noticed that her hair wasn't actually black. It was blonde at the ends, but looked black because it was matted with blood. A gash ran the length of her head, where she had been bludgeoned to death. And to my terror, she slowly opened her eyes. There was no white to them. They were entirely jet black and filled with menace. 
no good remained in her. What I encountered was evil in its purest form. Her gaze was sharp, piercing me like a jab in the heart. I looked back into the lighthouse keeper's room. It was empty, nothing but moonlight and wood panelling. Fear overcame me. I made a dash for it. The girl was no longer in the stairway and I began running down the stairs two at a time. I wasn't thinking straight. I I was petrified. I circled the cavern as quickly as I physically could, feeling the hairs on the back of my neck sticking on end as if there was something following me. I should have been more careful. I should have paid attention to WLPS standard procedure, safety first. But I tripped and fell over the banister. I fell for what felt like eternity, plummeting into darkness. Just as I thought I'd fall forever, it hit me. The hard stone floor smashed into me like a freight train, took the wind right out of me. I didn't feel the pain at first, adrenaline still pumping through my body. I heard a groaning and lying to the side of me. I saw the lighthouse keeper, legs snapped blood trickling from his head. I knew there and then who this spectre was. I knew what had caused the death of 1801, Albert, best lighthouse keep. He had seen the vengeful spinning girl. And now, so had I. And with that, I passed out. I can only piece together fragments of the following hours. People finding me, asking me my name, searching me for my ID, my phone. I was surely incoherent. Sometimes in my delusion, their faces turned into the spinning girl. Then the flashing lights of the recovery Land Rover, the helicopter landing, the rotor blades which sounded sometimes like spinning wool, swirling me back into darkness. The oxygen mask. The paramedics asking me questions I was answering but my words were out of my control. All I could see was the spinning girl. As we flew over the water towards mainland, I was hallucinating that the spinning girl was in the craft with me, staring at me with those dark, malicious eyes. Friends, I am now in hospital. Two broken legs, thankfully nothing more serious. It will not be a difficult recovery, although I am currently in a lot of pain. It will be a while before I can forage or solo camp again. I thank God that I have my laptop with me and I am able to write these reports of my experiences on the Isle of Lundy. Again, if anyone would like to read my photo essay for the West Lancashire Fungi Fanatics newsletter, they're welcome to. It's extremely detailed and contains references to other notable publications for further reading. I hope that you are all well. Thanks to Kirsty for letting me write the piece in this quarter's newsletter and giving me an extra day for the deadline. Thank you for reading what will be my last newsletter. I regretfully inform you that I will be resigning my membership to the West Lancashire Paranormal Society. As Aesop's famous saying goes, be careful what you wish for. I long to witness the gateway to the beyond and now that I have seen the other side... I wish that I never had. The truth is, the spinning girl haunts me to this very day. Whenever I close my eyes, she's standing close, 
in the dead of night. I hear her wool. She broke my legs, but I fear she still wants more from me. An ever-present reminder that true evil exists. But remember, folks, where there is evil, there must also be good. It has been an utter joy sharing a club with you all over the last 20 years. I will continue to be in touch and will stay in the Facebook group for fear of missing you all too much. Liam, of course, is staying in the club, so I'll make sure to get all the goss from him. And from time to time, we'll all have to meet in the Eagle and Child in Wheaton Village for our lengthy fungi discussions. <laughs> keep strong and keep on hunting. And with lots of love, Dick Gordon. Dick Gordon's newsletter was voiced by Owen Jenkins. Nice manageable cast on that one. There we go. It was big. We had a really big budget for that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we actually went to the Isle of Londy, didn't we, for research? We went, well, I did. You actually did. I did yeah. actually go to the Isle of Londy. And bits of this um, bits of this episode were written in the Morisco Tavern. Mm. Um, and that large we talk about. parts of Dick Gordon are mainly your personality. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, this morning I, I, I woke up to a text from Owen showing me that we had had an email saying that we're in the top charts in Denmark. Yeah, so that's cool. Your peril is massive in Denmark. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Um, but yeah, basically, um, we it's, it's wet our appetite to be in more top charts, and we've realised that actually it's probably a very helpful thing to be in. It would be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, what can what can they do to help us with that? It's so, it's so easy. Just go and just give us five stars on your on your podcast app, yeah. uh, Apple Podcasts. If you've got Apple Podcasts, that's that's really helpful. Um, and it's so honestly, it's so easy. It'll probably you know take you a second, like two seconds maybe. If maybe that. two seconds max, max. And hold on, you could have done it by then. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> and you could have done it then yeah, as well. Another one. We're we'll giving you a third opportunity. <laughs> Thank you so much for yeah, that. That's really nice of this you. This little bit now is likely to make them rate lower. Yeah, no, so. don't, don't, don't. <laughs> um, yeah, but the more five-star ratings we get, the higher we go up in these top charts and the closer we'll be to, you know, being able to earn a living from this. That would be lovely. <laughs> Um, yeah. Has anyone got any ideas of how we can grow the podcast? Yeah, if you have enjoyed At Your Peril over the last couple of years, then yeah, just that would really help us out. Just give us a lovely review and uh, tell some friends about us. Um, also, the perfume is still uh, available on sale. The perfume is very much available. It's so available you can go to the, the yeah. So you can go to the Indiegogo page yep. and buy yourself some lovely perfume. And Aunt Pira's adventurous past. Yeah, it's in. Um, the, there's a link in the description in the episode description here. So. Go and click on that and smell great. Yeah, lovely. We'll see you next week. Yeah, see you. The AI Alliance is sorry to interrupt your usual broadcast. The Star Project Pack will be arriving soon. We can't wait 